Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. And I am really, really looking forward to this conversation with the wonderful Dr. Peter Grunewald. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so I know we were connected through the wonderful Dr. Jenny Goodman, who's been on the show previously um, through me meeting her at one of the Integrated Functional Medicine Conferences in London. Um, and for those that don't know Peter, he is a GP and integrated physician working as a clinical specialist in behavioral sleep medicine. I'm really love to dive into that a little bit. And also general medicine at the University College London Hospital. He's a, an adaptive resilience trainer and leadership development trainer at the Said Business School in uh, Oxford University, also involved in the, the Institute for Public Administration and also the United Nations Staff System College. He's also author of the book, Manifesting Your Best Future Self, Building Adaptive Resilience, as well as others in the areas of adaptive resilience, stress and performance management, and physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health. I am so pleased that you've captured those four quadrants of health, which so few people do. And he feels passionate about utilising the relationship between education, psychology and medicine to improve and maintain health and to facilitate peak experiences. Wow, that's absolutely fantastic. And I'm so excited this conversation because I know when we first met, we really, we really connected in all aspects of, of what we're interested in and, and, and the context of brain health. So before we start, I would love to know what you are passionate about in life right now. Well, I'm passionate about helping other people to develop and maintain their health in challenging circumstances. In times which we're experiencing now, a lot of people are really under a lot of pressure and are experiencing the hardship of life in many ways. And I am very passionate about equipping people with practical tools which help them to develop resilience and, I, uh, a, and make them able to adapt to the challenges which they are meeting in daily life. And very recently, I've become particularly interested in a field where um, there is a possibility of joining up hypnotherapy with meditation and deep relaxation. And I do think that because we are exposed to a lot of stress, and I will possibly on the show talk a little bit more about it, it's particularly important to help those parts within the human organism which are responsible for recovery, the parasympathetic nerve system. And I think there is a golden opportunity through deep relaxation exercises to mode, promote this capacity to regenerate the organism even um, when one is exposed to challenging circumstances, particularly because we're living a very arrhythmic life. And as a result of undermining this capacity of regeneration, we're exposed to such a host of different inflammatory diseases, chronic inflammatory diseases from arteriosclerosis to heart attack to stroke to cancer, that I believe it is important to provide techniques nowadays which actually help to combat this and yeah, I, I, to, to prevent these kind of conditions. Yeah, and I do think that's so important. I'd love to, if you could discuss to the listeners what a an arrhythmic life constitutes what do you mean by that yeah i think you know that we as a with a core family do not really keep our meals at the same time of the day 
People are entering into the kitchen, having their food whenever they want. There's mm. no regularity anymore. There's sleep deprivation. We're going often to bed late because we have to finish our assignments or watch the Netflix film until the end. I mean, there are so many factors which really throw us out of a natural rhythmic lifestyle. Mm. But all body rhythms are interlinked with each other. And they are profoundly important for maintaining health. Yeah, for I, example, I... rhythms which we're dealing with are sleeping-waking rhythm, uh, fasting and feasting, uh, breathing rhythm, and many more rhythms like activity and rest cycles. All these rhythms are interlinked with each other, but they are also responsible for maintaining health. And if we lose the capacity to maintain rhythm in our organism, we're bound to develop illnesses, most unfortunately. Mm. Mm. Uh, do you know, I love that. And I think I was listening to um, a show with Dr. Chatterjee. I can't remember who the speaker was, but they were talking about how our different organs have rhythms yeah. associated with them, all the organs in our body. And yes. often we're, we are not in tune with those rhythms. That's and, right. And, and working against them rather than with them, particularly in the context of sleep. Yeah, that's quite right. And one of the rhythms which has become more really into, moved into the attention of everyone is the rhythm of heart rate variability. Now, nowadays, nearly every good smartwatch will measure heart rate variability. And with the help of, help of heart rate variability, we can measure, for example, uh, sleep phases, but mm -hmm. are also able to assess health risks and health potentials. And most interestingly, heart rate variability is one of the most reliable predictors of ill health and even deaths in statistics. Wow. It is a very highly correlative predictor, completely unspecific, but really highly, highly predictive because in a recent heart study, the Framingham study, which has been conducted in Massachusetts in the USA, a very large heart study, we found that heart rate variability declined eight years before the development of very serious illnesses such as stroke, major depression, heart attack, and cancer. And we do know that this is very correlative. So I think the idea nowadays is to actually provide techniques which help to train heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. Because heart rate variability is a measure for the flexibility and adaptability of our organism. It I mean, in the context of heart rate variability, we're looking at the, the amount of fluctuation we have between the high and the low of our heart rate, aren't we? Yes, that's right. It is actually the changing pace of our heart because... Mm -hmm. I think the word heartbeat is quite misleading because beat means the repetition of the same interval over and over again. But mm -hmm. in fact, when we're healthy, we've got a constant variation, a rhythmic variation, having our heart constantly speeding up and slowing down. And that's something good. It's a reflection of a rhythmically adapted organism which actually maintains health. And when this heart rate variability disappears, it's an indicator that the other body rhythms are also not really functioning that well. Wow, wow. And um, what have you noticed? It, you know, you mentioned how we, we're in this uh, arrhythmic world at the moment. What have you noticed in the context of um, the, the patients that you serve or the, the clients that you serve? What have you noticed has been a significant change over the last few years? in in terms of the heart rate variability studies you've done and also what you've observed in terms of chronic chronic illness 
I, I I can't really judge this so much really accurately, and I would be very cautious to making any any statement about it. But I do think there are two different features which we find when we look at heart rate variability and measure it over 24 hours. One is that we can respond to, to stress with a so-called fight or flight response, which is an activation of the sympathetic nervous system, mm -hmm. which prepares us and makes us ready for becoming active. It drives our heart rate up. It raises our blood pressure, for example. It pushes the blood from the brain into the periphery, into our muscles. Mm -hmm. And we've got an opposite tendency, which is a freeze, flop, and fold response to stress, which makes us numb and detached. We put our head down and we hope that the problems which we're dealing with will pass by themselves. It actually basically paralyzes our will. And mm -hmm. these two different opposite responses of our autonomic nervous system are reflected in heart rate variability measurements. Wow. We usually have a tendency to actually go more into the one or the other direction. Or we may also find a combination of both. Mm -hmm. And because there are two very distinct stress responses from a physiological point of view, there also need to be really different interventions because depending on whether we actually are dealing with a dominance of the sympathetic nerve system or the parasympathetic nervous system, which usually is responsible for regeneration and recuperation, we will use different types of techniques in order to help people to manage their stress on a physiological level. But of course, stress is also psychological and in some ways a spiritual phenomenon and a mental yeah. phenomenon, as are resilience. Yeah, do you know, I love that. And I'd love to dive in to those four aspects of health that you mentioned, your emotional, your physical, your mental and your spiritual resilience. But, but before we do, in the context of your life's journey, what is optimal brain health mean for you personally? Well, optimal brain health means for me, maybe on a psychological level, that there is a kind of balance between our cognition, our emotion, and our will, our motivation. Mm -hmm. That's not always guaranteed. I think very often we find that people, or we all can be in certain situations, become quite impulsive, or, you know, in terms of our actions, really quite withdrawn. Our emotions can actually go a different way than our thinking. We may have an abstract intellectualism, which doesn't reach down into our heart region or into our will. To actually know what we should do and being unable to actually do it is one of these pathologies which we are experiencing. To act in an impulsive way without reflecting upon what we're doing mm -hmm. is one of these pathologies. Having really strong emotions which have no consequences in our action and no insights on the other hand, I think are also pathology in itself. So for me, brain health is the capacity to bring all three areas of cognition, emotion and will or motivation into a kind of balance, into a kind of harmony so that we're capable to actually manifest ourselves as human beings in a creative manner and can make a real difference in our social context. Yeah. Do you know why I love that? I don't think anybody's brought in the, the context of will and motivation into what optimal brain health means from them personally has has there ever been a time for you if you take us back on your journey um into your past if you're willing to has there ever been a time where that those three elements have been misaligned for you your cognition your will and your motivation 
Yeah, I think I actually came out of a relatively traumatic life experience. My parents uh, didn't always really do optimal parenting, although they did as good as they could. But I certainly had a number of child adverse childhood events in my life, mm-hmm. which actually started with being prematurely born at seven months and then having to wow. go to an incubator. So I think I've had quite a few experiences throughout life. And I think a misalignment came about because I actually created a kind of refuge with a very strong inner life. Because, you know, as my childhood surrounding was not always really very supportive, I actually survived by creating a very rich inner life in which I was able to withdraw, full of imaginations, full of, you know, thoughts and concepts which work for me as a life of sensory perceptions. And I think this was clearly a misalignment because I really didn't connect that strongly with the environment around me. Mm. It really prepared me for a number of things which were quite extraordinary. I remember a time when as an adolescent I could sit down and do a mathematical operation in my head. And as I would do this, I would feel really an incredible sense of joy. And I didn't realize that I was actually already in a way meditating and that has accompanied me through all my life this capacity to bring my will into my thinking and actually develop one thought out of the other and become creative in my thinking on all kinds of levels. This was something which I had very strongly developed. And that would allow me to actually sit in a very busy environment and be completely contained, right? Hyper-focused on my own inner activity. And that was clearly a great skill, which I've developed further later on in life. And I will say a few things about this later on. But it was also misalignment because the world around me was actually not so nice for me. So I actually really tried to stay away from it to some extent. That changed. I went to boarding school when I was in adolescence. And obviously, it was very, very important for me to actually connect to my surrounding. And throughout my life, I've always put myself into situations where I was forced to learn the very things which wouldn't come easy to me. Mm. So instead Mm. of just going for things which I'm good at, I would have put myself into work and life situations which would force me to develop Uh, the qualities which I needed to develop, which is really a loving attitude towards the world of sensory perceptions. Mm -hmm. And that became very important for me. So I actually chose to live in a community for a little while. I chose to go a path in my career where I actually had to focus on perceptions particularly. For example, I worked for many, many years in special needs education where you can't help it, but really strongly observe what is in front of your eyes. And I think this has kind of allowed me over time to bring a balance about into my life. Mm. And I think this area has become very important for me. And by really meeting, for example, the work of Carl Rogers uh, with the capacity to suspend judgment with unconditional regard and also applying the same kind of principles of open-mindedness and open-heartedness and open-willingness to observations of nature I think this has allowed me over time to bring a kind of balance about in my own soul. But that took some time, of course, because it didn't come natural to me. Yeah, I can I can really relate to that, actually, because I I didn't have I had some adverse childhood experiences myself. And the way to escape and feel safe was to go inside my mind. Um, And and, you know, I can relate to being in the flow 
where my often now my husband is like Ruthie are you with us <laughs> because I'm too I'm very much hyper focused on what on what I'm doing and and completely disconnected um from the world outside so I'm sure there are many people that can relate to that when you've mm. had a very difficult childhood or adverse childhood experience and the yeah. surroundings are not safe the only way you can find safety is to go find safety in, inside your mind and there's many guests on the show that have they've talked about that as that as well I, I'd love to know what inspired you to become a doctor and and a general practitioner what was the catalyst there for you personally uh, for for becoming a doctor yeah yeah I think it was an experience when my my appendix was removed when I was 13 years old and I experienced the hospital environment. And for some reason, I actually had this inkling that this would be really a career for me. And since then, it hasn't really left me. When I was 18, I also was thinking of maybe starting a career as a journalist and wanted to study German and journalism. Uh -huh. And I had these two choices. And in the end, I did get a university place in medicine and in journalism and, germ and German. And I decided for medicine and I've never regretted it because wow. writing I can do as a doctor as well. But working as a doctor, I wouldn't have been able to do as a journalist, for example. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I was always very keen on both uh, the humanistic subjects, I think they are called, and also natural science. But I was always very clear that I wanted a job which works with people. Wow. Wow. And and obviously you had to push yourself outside the comfort zone, your own comfort zone, yes, in order I to did. do the connection with people. Because I know for me personally, I've found it quite challenging right way up to present day. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is forcing myself to connect with people because I'm comfortable being inside my head. <laughs> uh, but this is actually what I've always done. I've always put myself into situations outside my comfort zone until I could embrace them with real... Uh, appreciation and enthusiasm yeah. Yeah. I love that I, I I love to go you know staying on with that theme of of pushing ourselves outside our comfort zone is is having courageous conversations yes C could you talk a little bit about that have the importance of having yes. courageous conversations yes. with yourself or ourselves yes I I think this is really very important because really one aspect which has always been very important in my life is that when I have experienced adversity and pain I really always, always wanted to make sense of it. I wanted to understand why. I wanted to understand when I get through it, where could it lead me to? Mm. And how could I transform it into something which actually helps my personal development and perhaps the development of other people too? And mm. that was a really burning question in me. And I really came across the work of Viktor Frankl, which mm. in some ways was for me as important as the work of Carl Rogers. And they're standing on two poles of our humanity. One is really about opening our senses in love for the world. And the other is this capacity to make sense of everything, to understand why we're suffering. And just for those people in the audience who do not know much about Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl uh, is a psychiatrist, was a psychiatrist mm -hmm. who as a child survived concentration camps. And his book, Man's Search for Meaning, is phenomenal. Yes, it is phenomenal. It is really about trying to understand how we can transform adversity into a sense of purpose and developing meaning. Mm. 
And I think this is something which is specifically human. It's not a skill which we find in the animal kingdom. And that's why I actually consider it as a really truly spiritual capacity of the human being to be able to actually create values, mm -hmm. to create purpose, to create life direction, which is not necessarily just given by the cultural context we are living in, but can be generally created by everyone. And I think one of the tools of doing this is the courageous conversation with yourself. Mm. Because in the courageous conversation with yourself, you're actually going inside your inner voice and use it as a means of aligning how you feel and what you think and what you want. Mm. So it's Do you know I love that? Of, sorry? Oh, no, I love that. I think it's so important and we often don't have enough courageous conversations with ourselves and often we don't even have any conversation with ourselves. <laughs> Yes, and you see often the conversation which we have with ourselves are incredibly fragmented. Oh dear, why this? Not me again. You know, these snippets of short, you know... It's uh, like text messaging without text any... Text messaging, exactly. <laughs> completely fragmented. People often think, you know, that a conversation with yourself is like thinking something through and there is a similarity. But there's also a difference because the nature of a conversation, Ruth, is that we're not only relaying our thoughts, we're also relaying our feelings and our intentions. Yeah. And when we have a courageous conversation with ourselves, we're not just thinking, we're feeling our thoughts. Yeah. And we're also wanting our thoughts. We're bringing motivation into it. And we may even develop enthusiasm as a result of our courageous conversation with ourselves. Yeah. So that we can actually really transform ideas into ideals. And ideals are very different than ideas because they actually have this love element in them. And I think that's a capacity which we can gain by doing these kind of conversations with ourselves that we're not only creating purpose, but we're actually also creating the impetus of realizing our goals in life because they have become really more and more flesh and blood. Yeah, and it's really quite tough, isn't it, for people who've never had a anything other than a fragmented conversation to start having these deep, courageous conversations with themselves because you have to get uncomfortable. Yes, <laughs> that's right, degree. that's right. And you're quite right, because it can be really quite unsettling. Because in this process of having conversation with yourself, you may meet the doubter. You will yeah. never get there. Why do you even start thinking about it? How are you going to manage with all the adversity which you may find on the way? Just think of the risks. And that needs to be all mitigated, negotiated within your conversation with yourself. And you may also find that you're identifying the discrepancy between what you would like to be, what your potential, your developmental potential is, and what you are in reality in life right now. And that's a painful experience at times. You may say, actually, I never realized since I have done my courageous conversation with myself how often I'm forced in daily life to lie, to be untruthful. And that's a painful experience. So I think there is a level of honesty which is being achieved in these conversations with yourselves, which actually puts us a little bit on the spot. And that is just really potentially a little bit uh, uncomfortable. And that's why I call it a courageous conversation with yourself. But there are so many great advantages of developing it that I really strongly encourage everyone to do this. I also do think it's a whole more mark of leadership. 
It's actually what really helps us develop charisma and the capacity to actually motivate other people to come on board, to buy into our ideas. Mm -hmm. And really great leaders like, for example, Tony Blair, who was actually able to convince a whole room full of Olympic executives that the Olympic Games had to be in London within, I don't know, 45, 60 minutes. You know, they actually have this capacity because they constantly have conversations with themselves. Mm -hmm. And as they have conversations with themselves, they're aligning their thinking and their feeling and their will constantly. And yeah. that gives an incredible, you know, uh, capacity of persuasiveness also over time in a positive way. But it is also challenging and it needs a certain level of courage. And I think that's, I, I love to draw on that persuasiveness because when you have a courageous conversation with yourself and you also do that deep dive and get curious with the emotions that sit behind the thoughts or the thoughts that sit behind the emotions because they're all intertwined and what's that, what that is driving in the top context of your behaviours and your actions is you're able to start being persuasive with yourself. Yes, And like absolutely. you said, you're able to start rewiring those neural networks in your mind. Quite right. And shifting your mindset. Yes, yes, that's very true. That's very true. You can, in fact, give yourself a pep talk. You can <laughs> actually build courage. You can build enthusiasm. You can build preparedness to actually take adversity onto you in order to pursue your goals. So yes, I do think there is a rewiring taking place. And it is quite possible that you're coming to conclusions in your courageous conversation with yourself, which are really not purely a reflection of the environment you're living in, or a reflection of your natural makeup in terms of your genetic and adaptive qualities which you have developed in life. And I think that's quite extraordinary right? So, mm. for example, to ask yourself a question like, and when I will be 90 years old, and I look back at my life, what would I like to see in order to find that this was a life well lived, just gets you right away on the path of such a courageous conversation. Because you're taking the view of the future and looking back at your life from a future point of view, that's an extraordinarily good start for a courageous conversation for, mm. with yourself. And what, what would you what would your other tips in terms of people who've never had these conversations with themselves what would well you... i think i think really uh what i do in my courses where i teach this kind of technique as well mm -hmm. i tell them to do it first on, on on a piece of paper with a pen and paper writing it down and breaking it down into questions like for example what would i like to achieve in the next one or two or three years mm -hmm. why do i want to achieve it how would achieving this goal impact on me, on my surrounding, my family, on the society I'm living in, and so on and so forth? Mm -hmm. What are the risks? What are the obstacles? How do I mitigate the risks? How do I overcome the obstacles? Mm -hmm. What am I committed to do in order to make this goal a reality? And once I've really written this all down, I put the paper aside and actually pick some of these questions out and start to explore them in my mind. And if I can't do it, then I use my paper again. And then it yeah, may be yeah. a conversation with myself and then the paper and a conversation with myself and then reading. After a while, I won't need the paper anymore. And I can train myself slowly, slowly to have this conversation with myself. And I will come to very different answers often when I do the conversation than when I do it in, the, in writing. In writing, it may look a little bit like a shopping list. 
But when you do it as in conversation with yourself, it gains an incredible coherence and your feelings are engaged and your motivation is engaged. That's one way how you can slowly approach training yourself to develop this particular skill. No, I love that because I think we forget the power of writing things down, don't we? Yes. And then reflecting I... back on what we've written. Yes. And taking the time to actually really extract the thoughts out of our head and onto paper, all the questions out of our head and onto paper. Yeah. Because if we need to spend that, we need to give ourselves permission to think because we don't often give ourselves that permission and it takes time to engage our prefrontal cortex to activate the logical thinking part of our brain uh, and to to disentangle, as it were, or, or understand the thoughts that we're having and the emotions attached to those thoughts that are driving us to maybe have more thoughts or yes. negative thoughts, like we call them ants, uh, from a brain health coaching perspective, automatic yeah. negative thoughts that are running in the back of our mind. Oh. And if we don't take that time to check in, like you said, the doubter can come to the fore in the, com- in the courageous conversation. If we don't take that time, they're always going to be running in the back of your mind. <laughs> Absolutely. You see, that's why I also integrate elements like worst credible outcome and best credible outcome, because that allows you to actually really give, you know, a way for your fears, your anxiety, your frustrations, your anger and so on and so forth. That's the moment where we can actually face it head on. And I think it's really then in the end a kind of thinking. I sometimes call it hard thinking. And that sounds really a bit absurd because we always think we're only thinking with the brain. But I think we can engage, you know, the nervous system of our heart and the nervous system of our guts as well in the thinking process. Do you know, I absolutely agree with you there. And we don't do enough of it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we have got the abstract thinking. There are so many different thinking qualities, aren't there? There We have got the abstract thinking, but then we've also got this thinking, which is actually more of a contemplation, more of a conversation. And it's a conversation because our feelings and our will impulses are as much present as our thoughts. And they're actually starting to merge. And that's yeah. an extraordinary situation to allow this to happen. Yeah. And I, I, I like to think, you know, sometimes our organs start doing the hard work because our mind isn't listening yes Uh, uh, and so we express you know just from the simple context of stress we start expressing stress through chronic diseases or we express it through skin conditions you know you take your pick because um we haven't paid attention to what's going on inside our mind Mm -hmm. and so like you say we start experiencing the heart rate variability and we start experiencing the gut dysbiosis we start experiencing the the problems with the way in which our organs function Mm -hmm. um, and our whole integrated system works because we're not paying enough attention to what is happening inside our mind and how connected our mind is to the rest of our body Yes, I think I'd like to say something about this. This is really a very interesting question because we often think that, you know, our consciousness processes are all happening in our brain. But in reality and truth, 
it is actually the interaction between our organs and our brain. Just to look at our posture, if our posture is not upright, we're actually feeling and perceiving very differently than when we actually have a well-toned body, for example, in mm -hmm. a particular situation. Our emotions reflect in our posture, but our posture also influences our emotions. And I think, you know, when I started medicine, and this will tell you how long ago this was, that was a very long time ago, we actually, in fact, had, we were the last group of medical students, a subject which was called psychosomatic. And we had to study a book of 600 pages about psychosomatic conditions, how organic diseases manifest within, you know, our consciousness and how consciousness impact on our body. Now, yeah. this subject was eliminated. And what we find nowadays is that the body is left to the doctor and the mind is left to the psychologist. And that, in fact, is very unfortunate because, of course, mind and body are a unit. And yeah. every single organ in our body contributes to our consciousness. We couldn't really unfold our willpower without our liver functioning reasonably well. As soon as someone suffers with hepatitis, it's not just the fatigue, it's a fundamental lack of willpower, which is associated with liver disease very often, for example. Yeah. And kidney you know, disorders are often related to a certain level of heightened and lowered emotionality, where people mm -hmm. go from getting agitated to into a state where they're in a kind of stupor, where they're basically dimmed down in their emotional response. So each organ, heart organ and conscience, I mean, each organ has a particular function in contributing towards our, our consciousness. And I think we used to read the language of organs. We don't do this anymore. And this is a real loss in medicine, I believe. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, just picking up from the, you know, the integration of that is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the, you know, is the very strong link between the adrenal glands and our kidneys, as, yes, well, as well as the, you know, pituitary gland where we have the hormones that are generated yeah. in, the, in the hypothalamus in yes. our brains. Yes. And they are, they can, you know, we can experience, let's call it dysbiosis or, or imbalance because of this, the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response being constantly on and mm. not being able to turn it off. And, and I don't think people realize necessarily how intertwined all of our systems are and how, when we can have those courageous conversations, when we can start unraveling what's going on in uh, on within our psyche and also start unraveling what's going on within our bodies is we can re reach a much more harmonious state and balance um that is necessary so i i'd i'd love to i'd love to dive into that a little bit more but before we do um i'd like to dive into the five pillars of brain health and just do a quick quick uh, quick fire question on the fun facts where F is for actions, uh, F is for feelings, A is for actions, C is for connections, T is for thoughts, and S is for surroundings, and that makes up the five pillars of brain health. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about connection, so I'd love to dive into the third pillar, which is connection to yourself in this instance. What's the most important value for you that guides you in your life? 
I think really to support the autonomy of human beings and the capacity to develop love. I think there are three great drivers of human evolution, which really start with the first breaths which we take as babies. And these three drivers are autonomy, love, and mastery. Mm. And I'd like to really specify this. There are milestones of development of autonomy, which are the foundation for the development of personal liberty or personal freedom. And it starts with a child learning upright walking and learning to discriminate between me and you and here and there. And then the terrible tool where the child basically stumps with a foot and says, no way, I'm not going to do this, right? And then again at nine years, you know, when we as children suddenly have thoughts like, are we really the children of our parents? Maybe they have mixed us up after all in hospital. These surely can't be my parents. And, you know, then entering into puberty and becoming rebellious to some extent and then becoming of age. These are all milestones of autonomy development, which go on and on and on. We're becoming people in our own rights and not just a reflection of our own environment. And I think these capacities need to be strengthened because not everyone actually has the courage to develop it. There are many yeah. people who feel guilty when they say no, for example, when they stand up for themselves. They want to help all the time. They want to serve all the time, but they're also burning out because they can't really look after themselves that well. And on the other hand, we've got the opposite. You know, the me, me, me people who only yeah. want to do everything for themselves and really don't care at all about the environment. I think it's about a very healthy balance between the two. And this is really one of the great ideals for me in life to actually help other people to identify where they are and how to develop these particular capacities towards connecting perhaps more lovingly and more selfless with your environment, serving the community, serving the family, serving, you know, mm -hmm. in a relationship, but also being able to properly look after myself to properly being able to identify what I want and why I want it and how what I want actually impacts on the life of other people. Because just because I pursue my own goals doesn't mean that it puts me necessarily in a kind of antithesis with my surrounding. Not at all. I may very well take on things, you know, which are really serving my environment, and that may be the case in most cases, but I do it because I do it. And that makes a real difference than if I just follow. So I, again, I think really developing this capacity of freedom, individual personal freedom, and also love, and also a certain mastery in life, because that's also important. We want to be in control of the area which we're working in, for example. We want mm. to become experts in our own field. We want to be good in what we do. And I think this is very justified. I think these three pillars drive human evolution. And I, I am very keen to identify with my clients and with my patients what they need in order to fulfill all three areas of life. Mm. Do you know, I think that's wonderful. And I think we, you know, the autonomy really, really drives in for me is this, this being authentically you and understanding that you are unique. Yes, because everyone else is taken so just be you and yes. I don't think I think it's very easy isn't it certainly in some aspects of society it's happened to me personally where I was not fitting the mold yes. <laughs> and I decided that 
I needed to change mm -hmm. in order to fit the mold. And in fact, I was never going to fit. And so the actual resolution was I needed to step away from the environment because the environment wasn't serving me. It wasn't the right fit for me mm -hmm. um, rather than me being the right fit for it. Mm -hmm. if that makes sense and mm -hmm. i think i think we we don't spend enough time do we to learn how to develop that autonomy no we can be very much attached to something or someone or yes. some ideal without yeah. truly understanding what is it who is it that we truly are and and who are we as a an, an individual and a person and, and this is really rules where i believe we can't do without the courageous conversation with ourselves because this is really the very tool that actually helps us to explore our values our ideas and the relationship of our values with the values of the society or the organizations small or large we are living in Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with love, isn't it? Because to, to find love and to, to love others, we have to kind of first take the time to love ourselves because it's the first relationship and the last relationship we'll ever have is the one we have with ourselves. That's true. And we can work on this. And I think one of the steps to work on it is actually to develop a real genuine sense of gratitude. Mm. I think, you know, techniques like gratitude exercise are incredibly helpful to work on our self-esteem and really also on our self-love to some extent. Mm. That's just one area. But I do also think that there is really a particular quality towards being able to suspend our judgment with unconditional regard, as Carl Rogers has taught it to the therapists, mm -hmm. but which is not just only a therapeutic quality. Yes, it is therapeutic, because anyone who's being listened to with unconditional regard and with suspended judgment will thrive in such a relationship. This is just a fact. We know this from sound research, which has shown that a therapist who's just listening in the right mode really, really helps his patient. But, mm. you know, it's actually something which needs to live in our daily life as well with our partners, with our children and so on. So this capacity to actually suspend judgment, develop an open mind. It's not important what I think, but I really want to take in your thoughts now and want to allow them to work on me. And before I judge, I let them first, you know, reverberate within myself. Mm. And the same with your feelings and my feelings, making space for the other person within myself without instantly mm -hmm. having a judgment about it, mm -hmm. right? So really also having an open heart mm -hmm. and then an open will, which means I really want to serve the developmental needs of someone else. I mean, these are all really capacities which we can start to learn even if we can't yet quite love ourselves. But I do mm -hmm. think loving ourselves is also really incredibly important. It is very important. But to work on this capacity to suspend judgment and open developing these kind of open qualities is also incredibly helpful and important. And it can be extended beyond human relationships also even into nature because we are often really completely disconnected from nature, sitting in front of computers, for example, day in, day yeah. out and lose our connection with nature to some extent and to actually really reintegrate ourselves and make nature our home too, I think requires a certain capacity of um, 
letting go of our own thoughts of this intellect, which has served us so well in so many areas of our lives, but doesn't serve us that well often in social relationships and certainly doesn't serve us that well in order to actually get a more harmonious relationship with nature, for example. Sometimes we have to give up the very qualities which make us strong in order to actually develop other qualities which really truly connect on a level of love and mm. love for fellow human beings and also love for nature, for example, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, I know it does to me. And I think it's really important in the context of us finding the right rhythm as well. Yes, you're quite right, because when we have a conversation, I listen and then I speak and then I listen. And as I listen, I take in, let reverberate, process, understand, and then I answer. And this kind of conversation where I'm with you and then with me, listening to you and then processing, listening, processing is in fact a rhythmic process. It is a rhythmic process. Mm. And, we and it's not, it's in, I know we keep sometimes interrupting ourselves and we kind of break that rhythm, don't we? Yes. But um, it's much easier to have a conversation, isn't it? When you are in rhythm with one another yes. and you're taking that time to pause and reflect and listen and pause and reflect and listen back because you are working with, you are connecting with one another at an emotional level because you're not just listening to the words that people are saying, but you're feeling the emotions that people are expressing at the same time. And I think I love the fact that you mentioned open-mindedness it is this importance of being non-judgmental uh, because when we create a judgment, we immediately put a wall up. Yeah. between ourselves and the other person. So that mm. connection is broken. Mm. So we no longer have that rhythm because it's like putting a buffer in yeah. when you're trying to play, play a musical instrument yes. and, it, and, it, and it dumbs it down, doesn't it? Yes. And it is really surprising, you know, in my workshops, I often have executives and leaders who are actually in small groups starting to practice, you know, this suspending judgment with unconditional regard and they come sometimes out of these meetings are baffled really about the intensity of the experience and sometimes you hear things like you know I've worked with this person together for the last 10 years but I never knew what made him tick and now I really really understand and mm. this is just an incredible blessing to actually be able to understand someone else really in depth and practicing these kind of techniques, being open-minded and also open-hearted is an extraordinary chance to develop in-depth relationships with each other. Mm -hmm. Of course, in some environments, this will be very challenging and difficult and maybe even inappropriate, but there are plenty of situations in life where this can actually really bear incredible fruits too. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. And I'd, I'd love to dive in. So I know we talked about emotions at the beginning and I'd love to dive in into how you help people neutralize negative emotions so that they are coming back into balance yes. with themselves and, and reactivating the parasympathetic nervous system, 
rather yes. than their fight or flight sympathetic system. Yes. Well, this is really very interesting because there are two different qualities which we're dealing with physiologically. One is the physiolo physiology of relaxation and the other one is the physiology of engagement. And physiology of engagement means what actually happens in our autonomic nerve system when we are in this zone, when we're having peak experiences, when we're really good at what we do and we do it out of our heart and we're not only fully switched on and alert and mobile and flexible, but laid back at the same time. This kind of flow experience goes hand in hand with a simultaneous activation of sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, which actually go into an optimal rhythm. Mm. And this is facilitated by positive feelings, positive emotions. And if you use, ask, you know, this psychological association, the association of psychologists in America, what is really the key quality of resilience, they will actually say, at the heart of every resilience is emotional resilience. It's the capacity to regulate emotions and to shift from negative emotions to positive emotional states. And I think that's extraordinarily important because when we make these heart rate variability measurements and you actually have someone who's got, for example, a finger clip on or maybe a chest band or an ECG and you're projecting their heart rate variability on a wall, and you're asking them a stressful question like, Ruth, how good is your mental arithmetic? And let's say your mental arithmetic wouldn't be that good. And I would <laughs> then say, now tell me in front of everyone else, how much is 365 minus 89? You'd see a really interesting phenomenon. It's not a surprise. What you would actually see is that your heart rate goes up and your heart variability disappears. It's gone. But then if I tell you, sit down and just think of your favorite pet animal and how it's sitting on your lap and you're stroking your dog, for example, if you should have a dog, a pet animal, yeah. you know, by actually developing these emotions of love, these feelings of appreciation, of gratitude, of joy, you instantly see really nice sinus shapes speeding up and slowing down of heart rate, real heart rate variability. And here you can prove scientifically why positive emotions are health-promoting? Because they're rhythm-creating. Negative emotions do not create rhythm. They actually take rhythms away. And in fact, we're speaking about negative emotions, but I really do need to qualify this a little bit because any psychologist will tell you there is no such thing like negative emotions. And they're quite right. Because if I'm really, you know... Uh, close to a very busy road in London and a lorry is approaching and I'm not frightened to be run over, I may not even survive. Mm. So really anxiety, fear make us cautious. They and make anger us... is a powerful emotion. It doesn't and have anger is a really important emotion because how are we going to deal with injustice when we can't get angry, right? So none of these emotions is wrong. Yeah. They're really, really good. But the problem arises when we get stuck in them. When yeah. we constantly feel anxious, when we constantly feel angry, and when we're taking the emotions to situations where they're not any more appropriate, yes, it's quite appropriate that I'm angry when my neighbor, you know, attacks me, for example, because it's also a way of defending myself against, you know, maybe some offensive behavior. But when I then come into my workplace and I'm still angry and I'm then starting to shout at, you know, the people I'm working with because I can't snap out of the situation, then something has gone seriously wrong. And that's really where we become ill because we're yeah. getting fixed in certain emotional states. 
And unfortunately, not even always aware of them because a lot of those emotions are really even subconscious. Our environment is often more aware of what we feel than we, right? Because other people pick up the signals. And yeah, we, we don't appreciate know. it. Until we, we may not even know. Problem. We may not even know. <laughs> so I think one of the most important things in order to deal with these emotions and transform them, because I think this is what cultural activity is about, to taking these elementary emotions with which we are born with and transform them into higher feelings, which we can only either develop through social interactions or through self-education. And with yeah. higher feelings, I mean more complex feelings where emotions are mixed with thoughts, like compassion, like enthusiasm, like appreciation, like gratitude, which we're not born with. We're not born with them. We're born with anxiety. We're born with fear. We're born with anger. You understand what I mean? I yeah, I do. I mean, we're born with rudimentary emotions because our yes, cognitive, cognitive brain has not developed. No, exactly, time. exactly. In order to get these higher emotions or feelings, as I described them, we have to develop our brain. And, you know, then thoughts and motivation is already involved as well in developing these kind of qualities. But I do think, you know, this is not only a hallmark of health that we're capable to shift from negative emotional states to positive feelings, because this is reflected in increased rhythmic activity of our organism, which is profoundly health-promoting. But it's also a task of cultural development to be actually able to and capable to do this. And this should actually be facilitated in schools. But it's not always. It's not always. Of course, when you actually go to a Shakespeare play, you are educated in this way because, you know, you actually see the Shakespeare play and you see what greed can do to you and what anger can do to you. And you go through a kind of cathartic process because you're experiencing this emotion and their impact. And you see to some extent, perhaps, how it impacts on you. And you start to reflect and you ask yourself, do I want to live my life that way? And yeah. how can I turn it into a different direction? You know, drama used to be the preparation for the Greek initiation process. It was really in the temples that Rama would be actually used as a means for the catharsis, for the transformation of the human soul, for the purification of consciousness. And I think it's a really good way of doing this. So I'm not saying it's not happening in schools. It's happening in schools as well, but not enough, I believe. I think we need to put much, much more emphasis on this capacity to shift emotional states. So how can we do this? I think the very, very first step is to become aware of our emotions. Yeah. Because if they're purely subconscious, we can't deal with them. So how do we become aware of it? It's very, very simple. It's about taking a genuine interest. It's no more than that. Just asking myself, and how does it make me feel now? And how do I feel now? And how do I feel now? And when we're not used to it, and because we're not used to it, because in school, when we would go to our teacher and say, I don't feel <coughs> like doing my homework, they would say, get on with the job. I'm not interested in what you're feeling, right? <laughs> I mean, we're not really educated to listen to our feelings unless we're trained as therapists, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I, you, I completely agree. And I think, yeah. it, you know, for me, I write down my feelings every night. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And that's what I wanted to also advise because the first thing is that we need to ask. And very often we will draw blank because we're not used to it yet. Yeah. 
But after a while, when we ask and ask and ask and take a genuine interest, these feelings will just pop up. And one way of doing this is precisely what you've described, to actually keep a journal in the evening. Yeah. And to maybe look back at maybe five or six, six significant events, maybe even negative events, and asking myself, what did I experience? And how did it make me feel at the time? And then to use a feelings inventory and yeah. actually picking out the emotion. Why a feelings inventory? Because we haven't learned the language of feelings yet. Yeah. We are actually really analphabets in this regard. Yeah, I we're, are, we're, absolutely aligned with you. We yeah. are actually really truly illiterate because we haven't been educated to do this. Yeah. You know, we may say, I feel okay, but what does it mean? What does it mean you feel okay? I feel great. What does it mean? Do yeah. you feel joyful, enthusiastic, appreciative, grateful? You understand what I mean? Happy? Yeah, I do, totally. It's really about the specificity, and that's the same with anger. Anger could be, I feel let down, I feel hurt, I feel disappointed, I feel, you know, impatient. Any of this could be anger. So yeah. we need to educate ourselves to learn the vocabulary. Yeah. And when we do this consistently, what the psychologists call emotional granularity, then two things happen. First of all, we start to do this process even in day-to-day -day situations and not when we do our gratitude, uh, our uh, reflective diary only. Yeah. We really go through life and start to name our emotions. This is, of course, an incredibly important process for developing emotional intelligence because only if we understand our emotions, we are able to understand the emotions of other people. And only if we learn to regulate our own emotions, we can help other people to regulate their emotions too. And do not forget, our emotions influence our judgments, our decision-making, and our behavior incredibly. Absolutely. Even more and even when we're not aware of them. So bringing them into the awareness and naming them has the following effect. It actually neutralizes emotional states. It neutralizes them. It disconnects the emotional response from the event, which means yeah. when I get into the same or similar events again later on in life, I will not react in the same way anymore. It's a kind of neutralizing. We know this as soon as we start naming emotions precisely the limbic system which is responsible for emotion processing and which suppresses the activity of our prefrontal cortex, which is the executive function of our brain, and suppresses the hippocampus, which is responsible for long-term learning and long-term memory, right? As soon yeah. as we name an emotion, the activity of the limbic system is driven down, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus go back online and they can do their job which means we can process the experience, we can learn from them. As long as our limbic system, you know, is basically hyperactive, we're not learning a thing from our past experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And this learning happens during nighttime. And when you actually keep such a diary before you go to sleep, then a transformation process takes place during sleep as well. Because during sleep, we're constantly, constantly learning. We're thinking things through and we're processing them. And if we've done this preparation, which I've just described, to name the emotion which are associated to certain experiences, you know, we're actually really, really supporting this process at night to learn from our experiences and yes. to be able to deal with certain situations next time 
you know, with our wise mind, much more intuitively, much more in tune with the situation. So it's really quite helpful to do just this part of the journaling technique yeah. because it helps really a lot. But one thing I wanted to also say, Ruth, if I may, very quickly. Absolutely. That is the following. Did you have lunch today? I did. Yeah. I did. Can you just remember for a moment what it was like to have lunch? Just remember it. Yeah. So how, how do you experience your memory? Do you see yourself from outside sitting at the table or standing in the kitchen? Or are you inside your body looking through your eyes onto your plate? I'm outside my body. Okay. So Ruth, do me a favor and just remember as vividly as you can what it tasted like your food. It was really, it was very delicious. I had yes. eggs on toast with Good. avocado Good. and it was smooth. Okay. Nice, good. And how are you experiencing yourself now? Still outside or inside your body? I'm inside. Yes, you see? So you've shifted perspective. Now, this is more important than we think. Because, you see, there are two ways of how we can deal with memory. One is reviewing and the other one is reliving. Oh, yeah. And both are distinctly cathartic. But... I do think in order to relieve emotions in an appropriate manner, we'll have to have therapeutic techniques. And we may actually have to have even a therapeutic environment, particularly when we're dealing with real severe trauma, because everyone knows that when we go over traumatic events in our life again and relive them, we're making them much worse. Mm -hmm. So the safest way of processing, which by this play is no suppression at all, it's also a true way of processing past experiences is by reviewing things. So this is what I'd like to describe. I often compare this with a ballroom. You know, one of these old-fashioned ballrooms which have balconies mm -hmm. and you're dancing with your partner and after a while you say, thank you, I've danced enough. Let's go up the stairs and stand on the balcony and look down on the dance floor. Of course, you're getting a very different view on life, don't you, when you're on the balcony? because you're seeing your friends and you see where the music plays and you, you know, lots of things which you couldn't see before, right? And now imagine that you would do something really weird. You would not only see your friends dancing, you would see yourself dancing while standing on the balcony. And you'd say, this is absurd, that can't happen. But when you told me about what you experienced with your lunch, you did precisely that. Mm -hmm. You, Ruth, were seeing yourself, Ruth, in a picture one step removed. So you were actually on the balcony. And I think that's really, really important to understand that life either pushes us on the balcony without us wanting to be there and entraps us there, or it may entrap us on the dance floor and we can't step out anymore. Mm. And really what is so important in a coaching process for resilience is that we need to learn to take this into our own hand so that we're not pushed around anymore. That we decide, we decide whether we're on the balcony or whether we're on the dance floor. Not life, we. Whatever comes towards me, I need to be able to identify where I am right now. And I need to know, do I want to be there or not? Now, with a journaling technique, which looks back at past experience and asks, how did I feel at the time? I distinctly train myself, even with increasingly difficult situations being reviewed, to learn to keep this inner distance to be my own observer, to mm. be on the balcony and keep myself safe. And that's incredibly important to learn that. 
Mm. Yes, it's important to come down and reconnect. And this is really the second part of the diary, where it's about gratitude diaries. You know, gratitude journals are incredibly effective because they allow us to dip into the resourcefulness of our brain. Mm. You know, when we want to solve problems, complex problems, we can't do this in a state of fear that well, usually. Mm. But when we actually basically go into a positive emotional state, not only our heart rate variability increases, but the brain-heart connection will activate certain areas of our brain, which allows us in, to dip into creative problem solving. And we need to really learn this to some extent, because our critical mind is critical after all. And it's wonderful that we have a critical mind, because that allows us to discard you know, all those things which are not relevant and focus only on the really important things. But for social life, critical mind is not that good, usually. Mm. For the relationship with our partner, for the relationship with our children, critical mind is not quite as useful in most situations. Mm. I think what we really need to actually develop is not only an open mind, but also an open heart. Mm. And gratitude is a really good school for love, a preschool for love, for appreciation, even to some extent for compassion. Mm. And we know that people who do practice gratitude exercises are really looking after themselves better because their self-esteem improves, their happiness improves. And to systematically practice this every evening after you've done your review will actually gear you up to go through life and ask yourself, is this something for my gratitude diary tonight? And how about this? And how about that? And suddenly we're becoming aware of all those things which are actually fundamentally really good in our lives, despite all these horrible things which we're experiencing as well. Mm. And that creates a very different balance and a different level of happiness. And really what we're talking about is not just a list of things we're grateful for, but really a kind of integrating between thinking and feeling. What mm. I mean is writing down one thing I feel grateful for, and five reasons why, rather than listing, yes, I've got a new guitar, and yes, the car is beautiful, which I've just bought recently, and you know, and so on and so forth. Yes, so I think that's another really very important thing to uh, basically complement the review diary, the review journal, and this capacity to basically name our emotions with something which then helps us to shift from the neutralizing of negative emotions to the active creation of positive emotions. And at some stage, we will be able to put it all together. And that I call reframing negative situations. Mm. It means even when we go through adverse circumstances, we're making ourselves aware of the emotions, we're naming them, we're neutralizing them, and we're then finding benefit in this particular situation and shifting into a positive emotional state. And that can actually fundamentally uh, contribute towards developing a strong resilience, even in adverse life circumstances. And it comes back to your point, you know, with Viktor Frankl's work, which was Man's Search for Meaning, is finding meaning yes. in, in those moments in life. Yes. And, you know, I've been through some we've we've all been through adverse experiences is you know understanding where you can draw meaning from it and you can't take the time to find the meaning if you don't take the time to do that deep work and yes. have those courageous conversations and get curious with your emotions not furious with them yeah. so we really need to be 
you know have that curiosity around everything and keep probing the why 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 all the time Mm. to understand understand ourselves much better Peter, it's been a fantastic conversation. Um, I'd love to know what one piece of advice would you give to anyone who's really struggling with connecting um, with other people, maybe as a consequence of restarted with, uh, as a result of past adver- adverse childhood experiences. What one piece of advice would you give to anyone who's struggling with connecting with others? Yeah, I think two two distinct exercises I would like to suggest. One is really going out in nature and doing nature observations. And really with suspending judgment, just looking at the blue sky and not thinking anything, but absorbing the color, letting it reverberate within myself, and then really basically resurfacing and asking what does it tell me, a green leaf, the color of a flower, for example, taking a deep, deep, deep interest in nature is one step in this direction. Once this is done, then the same kind of quality can also be applied in human relationships through a real true listening where we're entering into this mode of giving up our own thoughts for the moment, suspending them, not allowing them to actually come between me and the person I'm listening and really deeply listening and really not only listening with our ears, but also listening with our eyes, looking at gesture, mimic, posture, breathing, listening to the music of the voice, the rhythm, the melody, and not interpreting it immediately, but absorbing it, letting it reverberate within myself asking myself then what does it mean to me and then responding, giving myself time in this process of encountering other people. I think these are two exercises which can really, really be helpful to overcome loneliness as we may experience it really in a technological time where, you know, fake, um, you know, identities are being built on Facebook and we're actually communicating more with a kind of image which doesn't really quite reflect us and Mm -hmm. doesn't reflect the other person towards really more authentic and true relationships which are built on love and togetherness and understanding. I absolutely love that. And I think, you know, taking that time, giving yourself that permission to pause and connect with nature it allows you to really slow everything down so yes. you can reactivate your parasympathetic nervous system and calm your mind down. So when you Absolutely. do go into a conversation yeah. in an environment that is more heightened, you've already yes. connected at, at, at a calmer level. So I think that's really great, great advice. Peter, how can people get hold of you and learn more about what you do and if they would want some more support themselves. Yes, I mean, first of all, I really just like to mention that I have written books on these particular areas. And I'd like to just mention them. One I published in 2007, which is called The Quiet Heart. And the other one I've published about two years ago, which is called Manifesting Your Best Future Self, uh, Developing Adaptive Resilience. Then I'm running courses also on meditation, and, you know, resonant frequency training, coherence training, and also self-hypnosis. And I think these workshops you can find when you go onto my website, which is actually named there, www.masteringlife.com. And then there is also possibility to actually contact me 
on my clinical website. Yeah, Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom in the context of connecting with ourselves and also connecting with others. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. You're most you. welcome. Thank so you. What, How was it? I don't know. How was it, Ruth? It was great. What?